0: This is State of the Human, the podcast of the Stanford Storytelling Project. What we do is take a common human experience, like teaching or belonging or joking, and bring you stories that explore and deepen that experience. When I was in fifth grade, my family went to the California Academy of Sciences. There's this huge glass enclosure. And over in one corner of the enclosure there's like this mass. Probably like a foot tall, a foot wide glob, kind of a circular mound of ants.
1: Chris Lebeau loves ants.
0: I know, the person that was talking explained, like, this is a biovac, which is it's the way army ants make their colony. And they all hook their ant claws together you kind of seen ant hills before, but this one doesn't really look like the dirt. It's actually made out of all the ants' bodies. In high school, we each had to choose an animal and write like an in-depth paper about the animal, and mine was the Isichon Bertelli army ant, which I went like way too overboard on and ended up writing like 80 pages about. This is
1: the same kind of ant Chris saw in the glass enclosure as a fifth grader. And as Chris discovered, They do much more than create giant ant globes. They also navigate the world as one giant ant
0: group. These ants, they live in this like central bayou vac, so all the ants make up a giant colony out of their bodies to shield the queen while she lays their eggs. And they swarm out into a rainforest and they collect whatever insects that they can, tear them apart, bring them back.
1: But when they swarm, they don't just scatter about in all directions.
0: They swarm in a different direction each day. So they'll go out in one direction, and then the next day they'll go out 120 degrees to the right or to the left and go catch whatever insects, tear them apart kind of thing.
1: The ants gather food in a different direction every day. How they determine where they go on any given day was kind of baffling to Chris.
0: Yeah. And like, oh, there's the queen. The queen must be making these kind of decisions. But... The queen really is just like hanging out when it's all the worker ants, the soldier ants that are going out and swarming, grabbing anything that they can eat.
1: Chris wanted to know if these insects have a compass, a map, a plan.
0: Each ant isn't able to think, oh, this is how we do it. It just happens. And I know it has something to do with pheromones, and they have this like kind of collective intelligence of this is what we do together.
1: Ants pheromone navigation often works as trial and error and paths that lead to food become more traveled upon, like a pheromone highway. It's part instinct, part random, and sometimes it just doesn't work out.
0: You've seen an ant line, like all the ants going in a direction. If the ant line gets disrupted, the ants just kind of all mill about and they're not really sure what they're doing with themselves.
1: What do we do when our paths get disrupted? Do we figure it out as we go, or do we have a plan? In this episode of State of the Human, we're examining how to navigate. At a bus station, on the high seas, on lonely roads, and close to home off the shores of California. The army ants follow the map of pheromone trails created by ants who went before them. They never question how the trails are made. In our first piece, we'll hear about a map that early explorers used for hundreds of years, even though one important detail on the map was wrong. Producer Virginia Drummond has the story.
2: Imagine you're an explorer. You spent months at sea in search of new land. You're hungry, and the work is hard. So you and your fellow sailors talk about a paradise island. A paradise full of plenty, full of precious stones and exotic women with trained griffins. The island is rumored to be guarded by vicious creatures, but that's not going to stop you. Sounds strange, right? It can't possibly be real. But in fact, almost 39 million people live there, and you know it. It's California. This image of this island originated in a romance novel written in 1510 called La Sergas de Esplendien which spoke of a fabled land ruled by Queen Califia, California's namesake. Spanish explorers were excited for a land of plenty and strong exotic women. Many explorers began to embrace this fable of a paradise island. We can't know why, but it was perhaps the promise that they wanted to hear. Whatever they didn't know, they filled in with Queen Califia's myth. And part of that myth was that California was an island. So in fact, for many years, maps showed California separate from the American continent. And as the myth passed around, people began to think of it as more of a fact. This is a map from 1656.
3: This is Julie Sweetkind Singer, Earth Sciences Librarian at Stanford. And it shows California as an island all the way from the bottom of the Baja Peninsula up to Cape Mendocino. And so many of the names are the names we know today, Santa Barbara. Mendocino, San Francisco, San Diego. She's showing us maps
2: from the 1500s to the early 1800s, which actually depicted California as an island, completely disconnected from the mainland. Now these are not the maps that we're used to seeing today. They are filled with calligraphy and illustrations. Mythical creatures lap at the margins of the map, and non-existent coastlines weave around
3: its border. They show you history in a way that's a visual representation of the space
2: seems to depict the landscape as green, lush, and sunny. The European version of paradise. Everything from tropical birds to Christian faith spreading among accepting natives. Again, always as a giant island. Map historians call this a cartographic
3: fallacy. It's one of probably the largest cartographic fallacies in the history of map making. So when we first started going out and exploring the planet and trying to move bit by bit around the world to understand it. It was difficult to
2: explore, so they never made it to the northern point of what we now call the Gulf of California. It was foggy. coastlines were hard to see and different from anything they'd ever encountered. Land travel was even more difficult. Hot, barren deserts blocked easy access to the south And the Sierra Mountains loomed on the west side of the state. So what they didn't know, or couldn't explore, they filled in with Queen Caliphia's mythic
3: island. It took years and years for information to be known and then to be disseminated through channels. Some of it which was open for people to know, others which the kings and the queens and the emperors would take the information and hoard it because information is power. So when you're also looking at going out on a ship and sailing, if you can steal their maps, you've got a lot of information about what was known at the time and what they knew that you might not know. And so this idea of California as an island persisted for a very
2: long time. The myth was passed around over and over again to the point that not only did people believe in the island, people would claim that they themselves had sailed around it too. California as an island persisted for a long time. Now of course, it might not be surprising for a few decades, because there's imperfect information and people's fantasies do run wild. But this myth of California as an island lasted for almost three centuries.
4: This was the state of knowledge.
2: This is Glenn McLaughlin, a venture capitalist and map collector. Glenn spent decades collecting over 700 maps of California depicted as an island. The
4: myth wasn't declared over until 1746. This was the state of the world.
2: The last California-as-an-island map was printed 300 years after the rumors began, and the last one of these maps comes from the mid-1800s from Japan, even after California had already become a state. In order to settle this mystery, a Jesuit priest, Father Kino, took a long journey by foot. He made his way by land along the Baja California Peninsula, taking measurements and notes. Notably absent from this journal were mythical creatures and Amazonian women. Based on the measurements, Father Kino confirmed he was not actually on an island. But cartographers and sailors continued to disagree for the next 40
4: years until... Another Jesuit priest uh, sailed his boat all the way up and around. He said, it's connected. And so they petitioned the king.
2: The king made a declaration that California California is not not an an island. By royal decree, California was no longer an island, and the myth was dead. Glenn McLaughlin collects maps as a hobby. For him, the maps were a reprieve from his
4: work. My work in the financial area and venture capital can be extremely intense. It can be confrontational, it can be nasty back to the maps are quiet. They don't yell at you. And
2: these maps can show us how knowledge is transferred and give us a new way to look at California today. In some ways, California continues to be separate from the rest of the country.
3: Now we think of California as an island as sort of a state of mind or as a geographic space that's bounded on the east coast of California by a huge mountain range that leaves us in an ecological and geographical space that's quite different from the United States. And it's not just an ecological island either.
2: It's a liberal bubble that's sometimes politically alienated from the rest of the U.S. Not to mention, California is its own economic powerhouse. So California is still an island, although not quite what the explorers imagined. And what's more than that, California is still a myth It's a place where we hope to find fulfillment, riches, or a new start, whether it's in Hollywood or Silicon Valley. We've heard that story so many times, and we know that for so many people who actually come to California, that it's not true. But we like that story, and we continue to perpetuate it and so many others because we want to
4: believe in them. And once you get a myth going, it is very hard to change it. And I find we're in the similar kind of situation now. You know, we've got a lot of myth, false news, or fake news, or whatever. So we have the same problem. It's a human nature problem.
2: And like the explorers, we grasp onto this myth, this paradise place called California. The story's a little different now, but it's a place that still inspires wonder. After all these centuries, the myth of California remains, a sunny, golden paradise, full of innovations and technology, filled with neon lights and endless glamour. A place full of promises in which the explorers too once believed.
1: That story was produced by Yui Lee and Virginia Drummond. It featured original music by Latifa Hamza, a master student at Stanford. The maps from the story can be found at the David Rumsey Map Center, located in the Green Library at Stanford. For many, California is a destination. For others, it's a place along the way. In our next story, four student producers visit a Greyhound bus station in Oakland, California, and find out how people navigate in the middle of their journeys.
5: On the day we went to the Oakland Greyhound station, there was a handyman out front fixing a giant neon sign. The guy told us that he'd spent his whole life fixing neon signs. The one at the station had three foot tall letters that just spelled bus. There are four of us. Kathy, Isabella, me, Holly, and Mark.
6: That's me. The plan was to hunker down in the waiting area all day and catch people when they got on and off the buses. We were here to ask them how they'd wound up here. On the Greyhound, but maybe also in life. When we got there, the station was quiet and mostly empty. So for a while, we just stood around in the waiting area, staring at two or three people in their suitcases and feeling stupid.
5: But then, at 3 PM, a bus pulled in. Suddenly, there are people everywhere. And this
6: is when Mark first met Alex. So Alex, he's this kind of young guy, maybe mid-30s. He's got curly brown hair and a beard. But I noticed him because this guy was moving fast. In a station full of people trying to figure out where they were going next, he had already bounded right off the bus and made a beeline straight for the door. So I chased after him into the rain.
7: Do you know if uh, the BART station is this way, or we're not completely now? sure? Yeah, yeah. me
0: neither.
6: Less than a minute after we had met, not we were somehow sure. pounding the pavement side by side through downtown Oakland, while I looked up his own directions to the nearest BART train station.
7: Kind of pull up a map, maybe.
6: And he answered interview questions um, that I hadn't even asked.
7: Since I moved to Los Angeles two years ago, um, this has been my only, my only
6: trip. Before I even had my microphone out, he had already told me that he was on his way to SF and he needed to meet this guy who was going to give him a 360 camera to work on this show that somehow involved in the mimes.
7: It is a story about travel. Uh, we're going to travel to different locations in order to produce it. It's got the, the departure, initiation, return, and lots of chapters on the way.
6: He told me he'd been out of a job for the past few years. He'd just been um, kind of stuck in LA, crashing around, and then all of a sudden, control. this chance landed in front of him. He could leave everything behind to come here and make this crazy play happen.
7: I'm not in my 20s anymore, and I'm starting to think about wanting to settle down. If you decide something, you kind of have to destroy everything else, right? Your other options, you got to let them go.
6: Being stuck in one place like these last couple of years, he identified said that wasn't really like him. Or at least, that wasn't how things used to be.
7: I've identified as a traveler for a long time now, since I was about 10 years. I, uh, I grew up in Chicago, and uh, my first taste of the road was on a tent show tour through Iowa. We lived outside the whole time. Is this,
6: oh, that's 18th, or so is that, this 19th? I think so. Oh no, that's 19th, so we gotta go that way. Yeah, okay, cool. Perfect. By this point, I was pretty focused on just getting our map turned in the right direction, but as we jog interviewed our way through Oakland, I started to realize that maybe a map wasn't what we really needed to figure out where Alex wanted to go. At first he told me that he was done with travel, with going places. He said he was getting older. He said he'd been thinking about settling down.
7: For me, all the travel in my life, it sort of got old. So I needed a change of changes, you know? I needed to choose. How do you see this
6: but by the time we'd rounded next corner, that next corner, it started to sound like that wasn't well, really what he wanted at all.
7: So like, How do you see this, this play as being a part of that? If you make a good play, you can tour it. And it's funny because I don't want to stop traveling. I want to tour. I, I want to keep going. And my, my dream is to get me on the road, you know, indefinitely. But I like to go the long way in my life. You know, I like to uh, go the scenic route. And, uh, you know, what people I'm say wondering. about, oh, it's not about the, the destination but the journey, that's true, isn't it? Do you know if we're still going the right yeah, way? Yeah, I, I believe so. I think. Uh-huh.
6: At this point, Alex had basically given up on me and had flagged down a couple of girls who were just crossing the street. Excuse
7: me, do y'all know where the BART station is?
6: And he seemed pretty eager to get where he was going, or at least just to keep going. Oh, and we made it there, eventually. The BART station, at least.
7: For me, that first travel was an experience that, you know, I can't shake. I gotta get my BART card here. Yeah. Gonna get on this bus or this train and meet this guy.
6: And then that was it. He rushed into the station, and then he was gone. I hope he met the guy. I hope he made his mime show work. I hope he's on the road again, and then he got exactly the change that he needed.
5: Well, he made it this far, right? It's like he said. At some point, you got to destroy all your other options and just go. He's already made it all the way here.
6: Yeah, actually, it makes me think of this thing that the woman told us when we first got to the station. Her name was Zanetta, and Kathy and I met her right when we arrived. She was sweeping the waiting room floors while things were quiet, and she told us that she had been working at the station for 11 years. So we asked her about the craziest thing that she'd ever seen at the station, and she just waved her hand over the whole place and said, You know, everything happens here. And when she said that, there was a part of me that thought, Really? This is everything? Because in the grand scheme of things, that's not how I saw the Greyhound at all. You're not supposed to stick around at the station. It's about getting to the next stop that matters. But then I talked to Kathy, and she told me that while I'd been chasing Alex, she'd met this girl, Lorraine.
8: I caught her right when she got off the bus. Hey, uh, we're actually doing a class project on people traveling. There was this huge crowd of people streaming out the door, and I ran up to her as she was heading out. Lorraine had short bleach blonde hair, a silver ball on her tongue polarized sunglasses. And she told me she was headed from Reno, Nevada to Eureka, California. To uh, help a friend,
9: their parents, one of their parents had passed away. Mm -hmm. And uh, I used to be an
8: RN, so I'm helping with his dad now. And then she kind of shrugged and that was it. As she was walking away, I saw that she had this intense, bright blue, sprawling tattoo peeking out from under her shirt, covering her whole collarbone. And right after I shut off the tape recorder, I was kinda like, why didn't I ask her about that? A little later, I'd gone outside to talk to some women smoking on the curb, and suddenly, there she was. She rushed up to me, wanted to know if I had a cell phone, and it was like this amazing second chance.
9: Is it allowed to make uh, outside calls to Nevada? Yeah. You're (laughs) my (laughs) lifesaver. No worries. Here you go. Thank you. Hey, it's me. You're probably at work. Um, I'm in Oakland. I wanted to let you
8: know, I love you. I figured it was maybe her family back home, or you know, the friend she was going to help. You have a pretty sick tattoo. Thank you. Can you tell me a little bit about it? And right away, it was like, wow, there was so much more here that I'd missed the first time around.
9: Candle means my sobriety. Um, I was really bad into meth, mm-hmm. and uh, it I had to go through drug court, and uh, probation, and parole, and whatnot, mm-hmm. and so like the that's what the candle signifies. Sooner or later, I'll get the flames that go right there, and then the roses mean, uh, like, life. Do you have any others? Oh, yeah. I got memories tatted on my uh, what, left underarm, and then I got a skeleton key, because I collect skeleton keys. My older sister and my twin sister, we all got them as, like, a family thing and my mom's supposed to get a lock.
8: <laughs> I asked her, you know, why know. skeleton keys? And she didn't really have an answer. And, uh, she said she'd been told she was an old soul, and maybe that explained why she was so into collecting things from the past. Although she didn't have the keys anymore.
9: When I was uh, doing a bunch of drugs, everyone stole them from me, but I did have a key. Co- I had a skeleton key collection probably for any old house you could think of. <laughs> I found one when I was really young. He's been collecting them since Do you know what they open? They open all kinds of different things I have had the ones for like the actual jail handcuffs But you get those taken away if you get arrested Like if they see it on your keychain And they'll take it away from you So what's on your keychain right now? This one is my dad's high school class ring He committed suicide when I was two years old So it's the only thing we have left of his He was schizophrenic So he thought that uh, people were trying to kill him Mm -hmm. The fun stuff. (laughs) She
8: was wearing the ring on a chain around her neck. I asked her what it meant to her to carry that around with you all the time.
9: Um, everything and nothing at the same time, because he wasn't there in my life. But I guess it shows that I still had a father. My mom didn't give it to me until I was almost out of, well, I kind of just never went to high school, but... I've had it ever since, like, middle school or so, mm-hmm. and I've kept it since, and it's been through some sh**, because, like, I when I was doing drugs and stuff, people like to steal things from you, and, uh, my baby ring got stolen, like, gold bracelets from when I was a baby got stolen. I didn't care about my baby ring, I didn't care about any of that, like, this is the only thing we have of our father.
8: She'd managed to get the ring back every time it was stolen.
9: It's happened more than once, it's happened several times, so I keep it here now. My stuff recently got taken in to impound because it was in a vehicle that I was using to get out here, but I ended up not. It was late and we were waiting on uh, gas money to get out here, and this is the only thing I was wearing. Everything else I owned, and I I mean everything, my clothes, my birth certificate, everything was in that vehicle and it's gone. I honestly believe it was like God telling me like quit your s**t and go do something
8: with your life. She had this casual way of describing these moments when her entire plan just to get out would come right to the brink of crashing completely down.
9: Yesterday, last night, um, I was with... Kind of like my boyfriend we went to go get a room because i was going to leave today and cops pulled us over and i was handcuffed and i was put on the side of the road and i I thought i was going to jail because every single time i've been handcuffed i've gone to jail every single time i've been pulled over or seen a cop i've gone to jail so uh i'm sitting there like on the side of the road and i'm like well you know like i know i'm not going to get bailed out i've never been bailed out no one's ever came to the rescue the cops say, all right, now I'm going to have you stand up, turn around, and I'm going to take these handcuffs off. And I'm like, what? You're joking, right? And then they let me go, and I was like, all right, I'm out. Peace out. I'm out of Nevada. I'm done with Nevada. I'm so done. I'm going back to—I was born out here
8: in Hayward. So I was like, I'm gone. I'm going home. Is your boyfriend back? still back in Nevada? Yeah. So that's who she'd been calling earlier, when I'd first met her. It's me, you are
9: probably at work. Um, I'm in Oakland.
8: She told me her mom was still in Reno and both of her sisters too. I started to realize how much of her past she'd put behind her to get on that Greyhound bus. And it struck me that what she'd managed to do, not the destination, not where she was headed, just the very act of going, that was this pretty incredible thing. She told me that she'd only met her boyfriend a few months ago, and I asked her how he felt about this, to have fallen in love with someone who was gone so quickly.
9: It's kind of but he just got a job. He's about to be assistant manager at, like, this dog grooming place. I was not having assistant manager jobs when I was 18. I was out selling drugs. So, I mean, anything's better than what I was doing, right? So I told him he couldn't come with me. He knew I was going even when I met him. So it was, it was, it probably wasn't as hard for him, but it was hard for me because I didn't expect to like someone so much. And I didn't want to because I knew I was leaving, you know? So it hit me pretty hard. What do you mean that you knew that you were leaving? Oh, I've known for like almost all this year that I needed to go. It's just I didn't, I don't know, something kept me around with me. maybe he'll do something with his life and I'll be able to come back and live a life, but I'm not letting him not try for something, you know. It hurt more than anything, but it had to have been done. Now I'm here today with nothing, <laughs> but when I go to Eureka, hopefully it'll be a lot more easier. I really want to help my friend and his dad. I feel really bad for him. And he helped me out when I was down down and out when I was in Nevada. So might as well come back out here and help him.
8: When we were saying goodbye, I asked her what she hoped would happen at Eureka. I asked her where all this was headed, what she thought the very best possible outcome could be. I don't know, she said. A new life. What's a new life, I asked. And she said, I don't know. I'm making it up as I go along. Maybe it's better that way.
5: So that's how you get unstuck, then. You just go. Alex, Lorraine, everything was going wrong. And so they ran like crazy. And if they're lucky, they'll get unstuck and leave it all behind.
6: I mean, that's one option.
5: What's the other option?
6: Well, well, obviously you could just stick around and wait.
10: You know, I, I've been in the city all my life, and it, it, it doesn't serve me well.
6: I'm just wondering what your guys' experiences are with like, what you're traveling right now and why. I'm a trucker,
10: so oh, I really? travel all the time. I'm, I'm making it back up to where I gotta go. Uh, mm-hmm.
6: <laughs> to him, the Greyhound isn't anything special. It's just a part of work by now. He takes the Greyhound upstate, drives track back home to Oakland. It's a routine.
10: You know, my plea is up there, so... mm -hmm.
6: And he's been doing it so long that this time, well, maybe this is the time, he said, that things were going to change.
10: I love Oakland, but um, I don't want to live here
11: more.
10: (laughs) When I came back this time, I was like, "Mm, never coming back. (laughs) Just never coming back. But my daughter, she travels with me a lot. We see places and I'm like, this is where I want to live. This would be great, you know what I'm saying? I've stopped some places and I just pull the truck over. And, and uh, I drive a 53 footer. I come to uh, Arizona and you know, the mountain just, it just makes it look like a tanker truck.
4: <laughs>
10: the awe of
6: it. You just feel like you, you,
10: I, I'm so small here, you know?
6: So, so do you think that's, that's where you want to move to? Is that-
10: yeah, it's gonna be a ranch, it's gonna be a ranch, and, yeah. I've been thinking about Arizona or Oregon, so that's why I do what I do. That's why I do what I do. You know what I'm saying? The money's not a problem. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's just where, you know what I mean? Where I just feel like I wanna be. I, I, I like the wide open. And then when it's dark, it's dark. I'm a cowboy. (laughs) one of the modern cowboys. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's over with now. All
6: right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. (laughs) It
5: So once he gets, if he gets this ranch, Is that the end? What do you mean? I don't know. Like, he keeps going in circles, up to his trucks and back, every day, until he leaves forever. And then he just lives happily ever after?
6: I mean, I guess that's the whole point of the dream, right? I mean, it's something to keep him going.
5: Okay. Well, I mean, I think of this one guy my friend told me about who had everything figured out. He was going to grow up, become a professional organist, marry the love of his life, move back to the small town he came from, and have three kids. And we used to joke about that. But I also think I kind of envied him. He knew where he was going. And I think he was actually the only person I've ever known who had a single dream that he saw that clearly. That is... (laughs) Okay, okay. Let's go. go. Until I met Shoda. I'm from Japan. Okay, cool. So I saw this guy, kind of during a lull, and he was standing at a counter. Not in the main station where most people wait for buses. But anyway, he was bobbing his head, very much into his music.
12: Music. Do you know DMX? Hip-hop music.
5: He had this big, scraggly beard and this huge backpacker's pack. He was just so much into his own world, and I wanted to know what that world was. He told me his name was Shota. I'm Shota. Very enthusiastically. Showtime. And he was on this huge trip across America.
12: Using a Greyhound bus.
13: Oh my God.
5: He actually pulled out this map of the United States Mm. on his phone, with stars at every location he had been.
12: New Orleans, Texas. I used Greyhound bus. I don't like Greyhound bus.
5: Then why did you choose to come here now, to America?
12: Ah, because American culture is so cool. Al Pacino. I like Al Pacino movies. So, uh, America. Oh, cool, man.
5: So actually a lot later, when I was listening to this again, what's funny is that I realized that one of the first things he said to me Forget about it," was actually a quote from an Al Pacino movie.
12: Forget about it. Forget about it. When I was uh, 12 years old, I watched the MTV. Oh, wow. America is so cool. I want to go. Everybody. Say to me, why you go to America? I don't understand. (laughs) Watch out terrorism. Watch out ISIS. Forget about it.
6: (laughs) Forget about
5: it. So for this guy who loves America so much, this is like a trip of a lifetime. He made me so excited about the fact that I live here in America. I was born into the dream he wanted so badly. This trip right now in this Greyhound station. This is everything he's dreamed of. And now I'm
12: 28. 16 years later, finally. Yes, America. Like this. My dream to go to America. So my dream was (laughs) finished.
6: So wait, what does he mean when he says my dream is finished? That's the thing.
5: His dream, I think, is over. I asked him what it'll be like when he gets back home and what kind of life he's going back to. And it turns out, he didn't really have anything to go back to.
12: No, I quit the job.
5: To come here? Or... Yes. Really? So
12: I have to find another job in my country. Just quit? Yes. Yeah. Uh... Save money and quit. And come here. And my dream is over because come to America.
5: He has his family. But like the drive and the energy for what's back in Japan just isn't the same as what he has for America right now, right at this moment. And so I started to realize that this thing that sounded so amazing, this trip of a lifetime, this was his one shot. He'd dreamt of America and now he was here. And it was over. And so I asked him what the next America-like dream would be. Next dream, mm, I don't know. What do you what do you want to do? I don't know <laughs> I actually found myself fighting to convince him that his next dream would be possible. I really wanted it to happen. What'd next you like?
12: job. Uh, I like pizza, <laughs> but Japan Japan is no pizza store. I want to make own company. Pizza store is my
5: dream but it didn't honestly seem like he thought he could pull it off. Very too hard for me. Money is necessary, so. But as we were leaving, after I'd recommended him four different pizza restaurants in San Francisco, I realized that he had made it to America. And it might have taken him 16 years, but he was here. So I'm hopeful for the pizza company. I think he'll make it happen. Yeah, I- You'll we,
12: learn. Yeah, <laughs> my parents have a album,
5: Or at least, I hope he'll try. After Shoda left, after we had all left, really, after we'd packed up at the Greyhound and went home, I realized that behind all of the interviews, there was always this bigger, looming question. We would always ask, where are you going? And it should be an easy question because they have the destination written right on their ticket. But after a few questions, though, it became clear that the answer was so much more complicated.
6: There was actually this thing that Alex said to me around the end of our interview, before we got to the BART station. But I remembered later.
7: Back about six years ago, I thought, I need to see America again with a no interstate rule I made for myself. because that's
6: No interstates, he said, because off the interstate, you can beautiful get, beautiful. get more scenery. Like, even if you don't get there fast, the or kind of like, even if you don't get, there, fast, express, you don't Walmart, get there at all, at right least on the way home, there, you'll see some beautiful here. things. Um,
5: and maybe that was it in the end, the best everyone was hoping for. At least they had made it all the way to this station, even if they didn't know how to take it from there. Everywhere they'd been, there is this good scenery. And I think I can be okay with that. Figuring out the next destination over and over again. And in between being lost, seeing some beautiful things.
1: That piece was produced by Kathy Wong with help from Holly Cool and Mark Mendoza. You're listening to State of the Human, the radio show of the Stanford Storytelling Project. In this episode, we navigate the theme of navigating, asking how do we move through the world without a map? In our next segment, narrated by Aparna Verma, we zoom into one person's pursuit of the American dream.
14: I've seen most of more of America than most of my friends and they have been living here for god 18 years. I'm Saptarshi Majumdar, uh, I go by Sap. And during the winter, Sap took a 35-hour Greyhound to Austin from LA. And then like I I took an 11-hour bus ride to uh, New Orleans from Austin,
13: which amounts to a grand total of 1,892 miles, a journey across America that was...
14: Grimy, greasy, long distance. When you are like telling a story of how you are doing a trip to New Orleans by yourself, and you're in a wheelchair, people appreciate the fact that doing something like that, especially if you're not from America.
13: Sap was born in India and dreamed of traveling until his freshman year of high school.
14: I had a tumor in my back uh, in like freshman year of high school, and like doctors had to like operate it, and it was like an eight-hour surgery. After that, I became weak and like uh, had to be in a wheelchair. Yeah, like I mean, I didn't know how to speak English because I never really had like a proper English teacher in high school. I I ended up like reading a lot, watching a ton of films, and teaching myself English through the usage of said films and books. It was pretty nuts. Uh, that's like how I started like learning that there is a thing called America.
13: The first time Saab left India was to come here, the United States of America, for school.
14: Plane,
7: right
14: India in general isn't particularly friendly to you if you are a, a disabled human being because of the fact that most roads are not inaccessible. Uh, so you, you have like next to no independence. Yeah, I f***ing hated it. Ended up getting into Stanford and on like and like my my parents were initially opposed to me coming here, but then I also got a full ride here, and they were like, I mean, okay, I guess like you're you're your own man, like we have to let you go.
13: When he got to Stanford, Sap was given a motorized wheelchair, a full ride in a double sense.
14: I could f-ing zoom around and do do whatever the f- I wanted to do, and like yeah, I mean, I was like really enjoying freedom for the first time.
13: And with this newfounded freedom. Saab took a road trip to New Orleans when he just decided, let's, let's f-ing go. go.
14: I took a 35-hour Greyhound to Austin from L.A. The guy sitting next to me, his name was Juan De La Rosa. And Juan De La Rosa, he was spending his first day of freedom after serving seven years uh, in jail. And he was on his way to a halfway house. We became so close. He told me stories that, like, just being at that level of vulnerability with someone was, like, very powerful for me. But I didn't have, like, close friends back in India because you're always looked down upon. Making yourself vulnerable is the key to actually connecting with people. And then... People in Texas are so friendly, man.
13: SAP reached Austin.
14: And that's the thing about doing a trip by yourself. Fleeting moments of loneliness inspired me to talk to strangers. Just go and have a conversation. I think there is a lot to lo- learn from other people's perspective. Like, it's not about seeing the sights. It's about having an experience, having a journey.
13: And so, Sap knew that he could... Re- Redo,
14: restart, renew my American dream. Be independent for the first time in my life. Fight like hell to like make my place in this country
13: Sap is always finding his way back on the road.
14: This is it for me. Like, if I die, I would rather die doing this.
1: That piece was produced by Aparna Verma and Jenny Han. Sometimes, just making a small shift in direction can make the difference between reaching your destination and missing it completely. Fresh out of college, Jennifer Johnson decided to sail with her boyfriend from Japan to Hawaii on a small, very small sailboat.
15: Every wave, with every single wave, like you think the boat is going to break. It would just be constant, constant, like waves bashing the side of the boat. And you're just like grabbing the rail, holding on hoping it's going to be over. And then the sun comes out, and it's incredible. When that clears, that's the moment that makes it really special. So I think I was about 25, a couple of years out of college, after having worked in Japan for the Ministry of Education for a couple of years, teaching. It was a time in my life where it was just a moment, you know, everybody's got a moment in their life where They feel ready to move and try something different and go somewhere. We had such a small boat, it was 27 feet, that we had to be really selective, especially for the first voyage. Provision with a lot of dry food. Things like potatoes and onions and cabbage can last up to three weeks. Eggs can last if you turn them. I remember sitting through storms, just like dreaming about salads and cold food, cold Coke or anything. I never, I don't even drink Coke and I would crave like, oh, I'd love to have a can of Coke, you know. My parents didn't travel much, hadn't left the country, you know. Um, I think I was the first one to like leave the country my family. I didn't actually have their support in a lot of ways because they thought I should work, pay for college. That wasn't going to be a productive experience, but I did it anyways. There's going to be a moment in your life where you're faced with this opportunity to do something that you never would have expected you would be doing. I worried about my mom. We couldn't, we, our radio wasn't working, so uh, we couldn't make any land contact. You're just a dot on a map. Once we didn't see any kind of ship or any, anything for 30 days. So you do feel like you are just this speck in the ocean and no one knows you're there. No one knows where you are. And you look at the chart and you're just like a little dot on that chart every day, moving just maybe the chart was huge, you know, it would cover our whole chart table, but we would only move like half a centimeter every day. The compass is right when you're sitting on the cockpit, it's right in front of you where you're sitting and doing your watch and so forth, but you're constantly making sure, like, if you're shifting a little bit, just like one degree on that compass. That means it's gonna take extra time, or that means the wind shifted. And so you're always watching to see if you get the best heading possible. You sleep when you can, you sleep when it's safe, and you sleep because it's safe. There were times when I would be so tired and I would set my alarm every five minutes just to do the watch, but I would allow myself five minutes to sleep and just like look up, like I'd be in the cockpit and look up. No boats, no boats, look up, look this way, look back. Back to sleep, set the alarm again. The stillness when the wind isn't. Howling at 30 miles an hour, you feel the stillness. It's a strange kind of loneliness. You start talking to fish. You crave talking uh, to people, to new people, to new things, so you end up creating certain dialogues with your environment, uh, watching fish, following you. You'll see, like, thousands of fish jumping at once, and you'll feel comforted by that. During a storm, when you're doing watch, it's hard because you're, like, in full weather gear, and it's cold, it's rainy, and you just sit out there in five hours of rain until it's your turn to come in. The disorganized waves are scary. I mean, they would hit you from every direction. You don't know where they're coming from. The wind would be all over the place. Your body is really tense. You are holding on at all times because you are literally sideways, swells would be this, you know, you'd, you'd go up on top of the swell and then you'd go down the swell and you swear that wave behind you was going to like roll over you, but it never did. You just want pounding to stop. Perception feels weird because you've just been staring at a horizon for 45 days and then you finally see the speck of land on the horizon. You're like, Wait a minute, and you're arguing over it. is it really land? Is it really land? I think I see it. Get the binoculars out. Get the binoculars out. Is that really land? We had, like, a land bird come. Um, the land birds are different than the, the, the birds that are at sea. And it would sit and chirp. And we got so excited for this land bird to come visit us. We must be close. Just imagine if you don't see anything but the sea for 46 days. Land was so green. Like, everything was so vivid. It like shocks you, the colors shock you. There's a fullness and an emptiness to it all at the same time. You appreciate things that you don't really understand exist. It really is a voyage. It's like a voyage of the mind, the body, it's everything. That piece was produced by Katie Wolfteig.
1: After that journey, Jennifer Johnson and her partner continued sailing around the Pacific for over a year. Today, Jennifer lives on a boat moored in the San Francisco Bay. In this episode, we have explored what it means to navigate through the world with maps that are constantly being revised, like pheromone trails, or to navigate through the world without a map at all. But what if there was one map, one guide, that really did explain it all? To answer, we turn to former national student poet, Louis
11: Lefaire. The first poem is called Writer's Block, and that's the whole poem. <laughs> Alright, the next poem's a little longer. It's called If There Were a Manual. I arrive at the local library. At the front desk, I ask... May I please have a manual for life? And the librarian responds, right this way. She slides quietly, is she still there, slipping through the corridors of guidebooks until I'm left wandering? When are we stopping? Which author will it be? I imagine what the manual will look like. Maybe it will be a human diagram with clearly labeled body parts. Feet, made in China. Lungs, please recycle. Wrists, tear here, graying hair, keep out of reach of children. Heart, handle with care, brain, lost and found, ears, for lease. Or maybe it will be a Google map, from here to happiness. Head south, dead end, turn right onto Despair Avenue. One way, continue until out of gas. Do not enter. Make next possible U turn. Stop. Turn left. Detour. Turn left. Winding road. Turn left. Visit the site of your own grave. Construction ahead. Cross watershed bridge. Yields of pedestrians. Take ramp onto freeway. Speed limit infinity. Continue several years. Exit. Destination. Or maybe the manual will be a carefully measured recipe for success. Four broken bones. Several tablespoons of tragedy, 18 tablespoons of hope, a full bottle of perspective, several ounces of a secret ingredient your mother forgot to reveal before she passed away. Mix well, cook at six degrees of separation. Still treading in the wake of the librarian and the absence of the quintessential volume, I stopped moving and realize that if there were a manual, no one would read it because no one ever reads instructions. Because maybe we're not supposed to. Maybe on the hands of the human diagram are scars that say, figure it out for yourself. Maybe on the Google map, you asked for driving instructions. But really, you're walking the whole way, so the time estimates are entirely inaccurate and you're able to cut through crooked meadows that aren't even on the map in the first place. Maybe, for that one stretch of uninterrupted highway, you can catch some public transport, asking strange questions on a bus full of strangers because you've decided Discomfort is the secret ingredient in your recipe for success. Maybe we're all supposed to write the manual ourselves, since only so many people can have the same number of broken bones, since everyone can choose, with the spoon-labeled attitude, exactly how many smiles to add to the cauldron before mixing well.
1: Alec Glassford recorded Louis LaFerre reading his original poetry. Today's program was produced by Will Rogers, Alec Glassford, Rosie LaPuma, Yui Lee, Kathy Wong, Virginia Drummond, Katie Wolftyke, Aperna Verma, Jenny Han, Anli Herring, and me, Connie Schell. Special thanks to Chris LeBeau, Deborah Gordon, Julie Sweetkind-Singer, Glenn McLaughlin, Sap Majumdar, Jennifer Johnson, and Louis Lafair. Thanks also to Jonah Willingance, Jake Warga, Jenny March, and the rest of the staff and students of Stanford Storytelling Project. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Continuing Education, the Program in Oral Communication, and Bruce Braden. You can find this and every episode of State of the Human through our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. Our website also has more information about the Storytelling Project's live events, grants, and workshops. You've been listening to State of the Human, the podcast of the Stanford Storytelling Project. I'm Connie Shao. Thank you.